All right, good morning. It's exciting to have so many people here. I guess this is like a first of the year kind of bump thing, and that's good. And if you saw that it was bad words of the Bible, you thought we were going to talk about cuss words today. We're not. I'm sorry. That's why Charlie came. I thought we were going to talk about cuss words. I remember as a kid in Bible class, uh, you know, kids would like find where it said, you know, somebody ate feces and like Second Kings or something. So they looked that up. You remember that, right? Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, other like little cuss words in the Bible, and we like giggle about it. So that's not what we're doing today. So again, if that's disappointing, I'm sorry. Uh, we are going to talk about bad words of the Bible for these first three weeks, as David said. And uh, let's see, we'll, we'll kind of look at that together. So today we're going to talk about sin. That's the big one. That's the one that gets all the press. And then we'll talk about transgression and iniquity. And I think to some degree we probably think biblically like there's sort of one word for sin, but there's, there's multiple words. And of course, there's some Hebrew and Greek we'll talk a little bit about today. And here is sort of what's uh, upcoming. If you're curious, if you're like a planner like I am and you want to know, uh, today, you've probably figured this out, I'm talking about sin. Next week, we're going to have Michael doing transgression. Scott will do iniquity. Then we're going to switch things up after you feel really bad, which is not usually the way we start in a new year. We usually start on positive things. We're going to start with negative things. Then we'll look at the gospel, peace and hope, love and joy. We've got the two Clints together. That's the only way I feel they should teach now is together. And I don't think either one's here, so I can say whatever I want about them. The two Clints, they'll be back to back. Um, I hope everyone had a good Christmas break, a good New Year's. There's been a lot going on. We were out a little bit, and so we went to L.A. to see Anna's family. Anna's not here because my children were being bad this morning, I think. Um, Charlie's sick, so he's hanging out with us. It's not just to hear bad words. It's, it's to hang out. So he's, he's hoping I don't talk about him anymore, but you're on the screen, so i got to talk about you. Uh, but we went to L.A. I actually hurt my hip. I'm getting old. I'm 35, uh, pushing my mom around uh, a zoo in a wheelchair. Uh, so that's sort of ironic a little bit, but uh, so I had to go to the chiropractor the other day. Um, I'm feeling better, so that's good. Um, but one thing I noticed kind of with Christmas and the Christmas season is uh, this obsession that we have with being good or bad. All right, and that's really wrapped up in the story of Christmas and certainly in the story of Santa is were you naughty or were you nice? All right, and that's a big part of Christmas. And uh, also kids kind of see that as the source of their reward. Would you agree with that? And uh, Matt was like, not really. They're still bad. <laughs> we still give them gifts. <laughs> um, but what are you supposed to get if you're bad from Santa? You're supposed to get a lump of coal, okay? I don't know if, we ever, if Santa ever follows through on that or not. I guess, I guess he does if you're really bad. Um, but certainly we, we have this idea that our reward is wrapped up in our behavior, okay? I think the same is true at, at Charlie and Libby's schools. They've got, I don't know where your kids go to school and what the systems are there, but in the, we've had our kids in like six or seven different schools, and there's always something for grading behavior. There's, Charlie, tell me if I'm wrong, you've had like clips, right? Uh, I had cards, you get your card pulled, or it would get elevated to a better area. Sticks, like colors, like they'll grade you based on colors, right? And so my kids always know if they've been good or bad, and we always know if they've been good or bad, so it's kind of helpful. Um, I think even in work life, as adults, that, that doesn't escape us. If you have a manager, you have reviews, um, I get to be the manager, and so I'm grading behavior. Your raise is typically based on how well you did if you hit your goals and so on and so forth. And so I think in life we are obsessed with this idea of if we're good or we're bad. You think that's true? And if you don't, don't say that. It would hurt my feelings. I think we're also obsessed with earning and deserving the good things in our lives. You think that's true? I think when things are good, we think we've earned that. We think we deserve that. It's very popular to say that we think we're good people. 
I bring this up like every time I talk about this topic, and I didn't plan to do this, but one of my favorite stories is there was a show called The Lie Detector, right, when uh, these sort of reality shows were, you know, kind of hitting their jump the shark phase, but um, there was like Temptation Island and all these like terrible, crazy things. They had one where it was lie detector, and so this lady was on the show, and they were asking her all these questions, and they were getting progressively more and more personal. Have you cheated on your husband? And she was like, yes. And she was telling the truth, and her husband was in the crowd, and I think I would have gotten up and left at that point, you know. Um, and then they asked her this question, do you think you're a good person? And she said yes, and she was lying, which was great, because um, she wasn't a good person. Um, and that's kind of my point today, is that if there's one thing I get across today as we talk about sin, is that the first step in understanding the gospel and God's plan for us is to accept that we are not good and that we are not right, okay? We are wrong. We aren't nice. We're actually pretty naughty, all of us, in different ways. We are broken. We are sinful, and we have a disease that needs to be cured. David talks about, when he talks about the gospel, is if someone tells you, you know, your doctor tells you, hey, you don't have cancer, and you never thought you had cancer, what good news is that? You're like, gee, thanks, doc. I, I didn't need to hear that, but I appreciate you. Of course, if you have cancer and it's shown up on a scan and you're told that you don't, I mean, imagine how exciting that sounds. I saw a video of a kid you know, ringing the bell after his chemo because he was cleared of cancer and he was crying and everybody was cheering and excited. That's good news. Um, and the news is, is that we, we are all sick and we all have a disease that needs to be cured. Um, and so that's the gospel, is that we're sick, we're sinful, and that that needs to be fixed. Uh, but there's a way out, and that's what we'll talk about today. So when we talk about the word sin, um, is that a word you're afraid to use? Is that a word that you feel is awkward to use outside of the church? Do you ever use that word outside of church? Does anyone, I, I mean, I'm, this is not a rhetorical, this is like, do you feel comfortable using that? Maybe, David does. Maybe in parenting, but not like at work or, you know, we talk about like, I, I might call something like racist or immoral or greedy or something, you know, there are, there are words that we would use, but kind of the word sin, that's not know, appropriate in our culture. It's kind of too, too religious okay. for kind of mainstream conversation. So it's just the religious tone, you think, or the undertone, I should say? I don't know. I mean, I, I do think we all feel this pressure to, like, you know, secularize our language. We, we kind of live in a culture that's supposed to be kind of religiously neutral, and so we all try to fit in, we know, with our colleagues and our neighbors. And what's kind of interesting is that you kind of get to know people, and you, a lot of times you discover, well, they're a Christian, too, and they would have felt comfortable kind of talking about faith stuff, but you both just kind of assume that, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I would feel more comfortable using the word grace than the, in a secular mm. conversation than the word sin in a secular conversation. Like both maybe a little bit out of bounds, but, you know. Sure, yeah. That's great. That's really good. And I think we'll, we'll get to that, too, today. Okay, just something to think about. Um, let's start with, uh, we've got three things we're going to get through today, questions-wise. We've got a little video we're going to show. The first point is, and uh, the first question I should say is, what is sin? So we'll look a little bit kind of like definition-wise and a little bit on a little Hebrew and a little Greek, and this will be the fun stuff, uh, so don't let this put you to sleep. But I think we know what sin is, but just to kind of unpack it a little bit, it's an act of transgression against divine law. So we would accept as Christians that there is a moral law that God has created. If you don't believe in God and you just believe in the natural world, 
There can exist no objective morality. It's just subjective. It's just sociologically developed over time. Okay. Now, we don't actually think that's true. Even if we say that's true, we don't live like that's true, and we can unpack that later. But we believe that God has a divine law that's written both on our hearts and revealed to us through the Bible. Okay? Um, the word sin actually comes, because I love etymology, it comes from the Old English sin, S-Y-N, which means offense, wrongdoing, or misdeed. Okay, so that's what sin means. There's two words, and they'll talk about this in the video, but the first word is Hebrew, and it is, I think it's like chata or something, but I say kata because I grew up in Arkansas. Um, and the, the, the meaning of this, and you'll see this is the meaning of the Greek word too, is missing the mark. And so I remember in Jimmy Allen's Romans class, he would draw a target, and he would say that the idea behind kata, or missing the mark, which is the idea of sin, is that you're trying to shoot an arrow right there, right? Or throw a dart. But you throw it, and it goes here, okay? And then you try to throw it again, and it goes here. And there's some degree to which that, and do, is that wrong? Okay, it looked like Eric was shaking his head like, that's not actually what kata means at all. Give me one second. You're welcome to stand and explain to us what kata means. Um, and I think the idea is, is that without God, any arrow that we ever shoot is never going to be good enough. Okay, there's actually nothing that we can do that's good without God. Okay, and actually God sees our good deeds that we bring to him as, what, filthy rags. And we could even be more um, uh, dirty, I guess, about that. Um, and so uh, in Judaism, you know, they have 16, or, uh, sorry, 613 commandments, and breaking any of those or missing the mark on any of those is what? Sin. 613 commandments. Every day you wake up, you break one of those, you've sinned. They have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, September 27th this year. And on that day, they repent of these sins, these sins that they have made against God. Okay. Now, in Greek, uh, the word is a little different, and it's actually... Hamartia, and I forgot to show this. Here's kata. We'll talk about what that little monster is here in a little bit. And then here's this word hamartia. Now it also means this idea of missing the mark, like shooting an arrow and it not going where it should go. Okay, um, but I think interestingly, it also shows up in classic Greek writings, and so uh, famously in the writings of Aristotle, but also in Greek mythology. So if you know anything about Greek mythology, you probably know what that little drawing is is relating to. That would be Achilles. Charlie, you know anything about Achilles? Okay, it's all right if you don't. We'll talk about Achilles. Sorry, I, I put you on the spot. So Achilles was a kid, and his mom dipped him in the river Styx. And doing that, in Greek mythology, of course, it's not real, uh, that made you what? Made you invulnerable, made you where uh, you couldn't be hurt. But what was her uh, error? She held him by the heels when she dipped him in, so his heels did not get dipped in this magical water. And so this was uh, her and also his hamartia. This was what literally means his fatal flaw, okay? And so hamartia as sin, it means missing the mark, but it also means one's fatal flaw. And I can kind of read the little uh, uh, definition here. It's commonly understood to refer to the protagonist or the good guy's error or tragic flaw that leads to a chain of plot actions culminating in a reversal from felicity or good things to disaster. And that's basically how all Greek mythology is. It's what is their fatal flaw so for Oedipus, it was that he didn't know his family background, so he ended up killing his dad and marrying his mom. Kind of weird. All right, but that's his hamartia, okay? And every one of those stories has those sorts of things. Even the Odyssey, you know, he has his hamartia. And certain characters that get in trouble in that have their hamartia. And so I think sin, in a, in a big way, represents a fatal flaw for many of us. So whatever your favorite sin is, sort of like your favorite football team, 
those could be your hamartia or your fatal flaw or your Achilles heel. Okay, and I think that's a good way to think of it. All right, so I borrowed a little bit from this book that we're doing our 20 question series on. It's from a guy named Wayne Grudem. Um, and I want to read this quote about sin and just kind of go with me here. Sin disrupts everything. We don't live the lives we were originally designed to live, and we don't live in the world we were originally designed to live in. Sin mars the image of God in us. We no longer reflect the perfection God created us to reflect. Because of sin, things simply aren't the way they were originally meant to be. The story of the human race as presented in the Bible is a story of God fixing broken people living in a broken world. It is a story of God's victory over the many results of sin in the world. Okay, so a lot to unpack. I kind of wish I had it up on the board. Um, but what's he sort of referring to there? What story is he referring to? Well, he's referring to Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, so what happened in the garden? Well, they sinned. Okay, and in doing that, um, they brought sin into the world. Not just into the human you know, nature or the human world, but also into the world. The world became broken, right? And so God's story through the Bible is, is unbreaking that and fixing that and mending that, okay? It's sin has wrecked not just us and our character, but it's wrecked the world. It's also covered up or it's sort of obscured the reflection of God that should be on us as God's image bearers. We talked about this, I don't know, seven months ago, six months ago. Chris talked about um, what is man, and then you followed up with what is sin, which is like similar to today. I think you showed the same video. Sorry about that. Talk about sin twice in six months. I guess that's okay. Um, and what is it that's special about man? It's that we carry the image of God. We all have the image of God. And there's no degree of sin that can cover that up completely. Okay? We always have something that's special about us, and that's God's you know, pattern for us or God's image physically or spiritually or figuratively that's written on us. Okay? You can't cover that up completely. All right, so I want to get through a couple things, then we'll show the video. Um, and I want to look at three different things. We'll erase. Sorry, I have to erase my, my bullseye. We'll look at three things. All right, so sin is a failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. All right, so sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law in these three ways. So act. If you think about the Ten Commandments, I think it's a good example. Exodus 20, commandments like, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Those are written against actions that do not conform to God's moral law, correct? All right, so that's easy. We get that, okay? And some of us think of sin as sort of like a list of things you don't do and that you should do and then, if, you know, so on and so forth. The second, though, is, is that uh, it can uh, pertain to attitude, so both actions and attitude. We see those in the Ten Commandments too. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife. Um, those are attitudes that are sinful. It doesn't conform to God's moral law. And then the third one I think is uh, also interesting is nature. Okay, so sin is a failure to conform to the moral law of God and act, attitude, or nature. Um, and so as we talked about earlier, uh, we were made in the image of God, but due to the fall, we also have a sinful nature. So I'm going to read a couple verses here. This is from Romans 7. This is a really confusing part of Romans 7, but I think it helps get at what I mean by this nature. And uh, we'll talk about this later, what, whether it's a nature we inherited directly or it's just a nature that every man and every woman sort of goes in the same way. That's just kind of how we're built. I don't know. But here's Romans 7, 15, 17, and 18. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So this gets at our sinful nature. And I think a lot of us probably feel this way every day with certain things that we do and we continue to do that we know are not healthy and helpful and we'll get at what does sin actually do to us and how does it affect us later. Um, But it's almost like we're powerless, like we're slaves to it. And certainly as Christians, we shouldn't be any longer, but we continue to be. Ephesians 2, 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so again, we, we have a sinful nature that plays a part in all this, and that we break God's moral law when we act against his commandments and the things he wants for us, when we have attitudes that aren't healthy, and when we have this nature that puts us at odds with God. You did a great job. I wish I could like draw the diagram exactly. You had the two boxes, and you had this idea of going from death to life and from you know, giving up sin and, and all those sorts of things through baptism and through the power of the cross and so on. It's a great way to think of it. Um, but our nature that we, we have, it puts us at odds with the holy God who created us. Okay. All right, so we see that sin is a failure to conform to the moral law in act, attitude, and nature. And then God's nature, what is God's nature? Well, it's very different than ours. It's, it's holy. Um, and in that sense, in being perfectly holy, he has to be distant from sin, or he has to be separated from sin. David said this in his lesson a few months ago, but God hates sin. Um, and the reason he hates sin is because it directly contradicts everything that he is. And so if we want to be like God, we have to hate sin, and we'll, we'll talk about that later too. Let's get into the video. We'll jump back in with a couple more points. What's up, Anna? Um, and let's see. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. I mean, of course, I practiced it twice this morning already, so just kidding. All right, so I want to summarize the video. Uh, one thing they said that I thought was very profound is this, and I'm going to read it exactly off the video. With the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition in three things. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we are succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. So among these statements, and from the video we just saw, what resonates with you the most? What sort of stands out to you? And I'll, I'll write these while you're, while you're thinking about what you want to say. I think it's interesting, our inability to discern like what's right and wrong. So, I don't remember what, where I heard this, but there's a, I uh, may have read it somewhere, but if you like, look at like the most evil people in world history, almost all of them think they were like good people. So there's like self, just our ability to like self-justify is incredible. <coughs> That's one of the reasons that like objective truth and, and trust in the Bible is so important. Because you'll talk yourself into Even murder, you know, um, we just have an incredible ability to justify as, as morally okay what it is that we want to do in the first place. And so um, I think it's, it's a really powerful part of being human and um, why it's so important that, that our ultimate authority is not what we think or feel or want, but what God has said. Hmm. Yeah. Again, I think it comes back to that opening point is, is that I think we are so obsessed with being good or feeling like we're good 
we're, and I'll say this later, I'm taking away from my conclusion, but in our own story, we're always the hero, okay? And so we never think of ourselves as the villain, like Hitler, okay, we always bring Hitler up, okay? But he thought of himself as doing a good thing, right? He thought he was doing a good thing, which is insane. Like no one literally would agree with that in this room. Um, he thought he was doing the right thing, okay? Um, I, this reminds me of this tweet from Tim Keller that I had, is that the sin that is killing you the most right now is the one you're most defensive about or just completely unaware of. And uh, I think there's certainly truth to that. And I don't know if that's the pride inside of ourselves that, it, that has to, we have to tell ourselves that we're doing right, um, even when we're doing bad. And so, you know, you're talking about like an affair, someone has an affair and it's, well, it's because my wife wasn't showing me enough attention or she wasn't doing the right things. And it's like, well, no, you, you sinned. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, anything else with this video that kind of jumped out at you? Yeah. Yeah, if we accept that the goal is to hit the bullseye and none of us hit the bullseye, it doesn't matter how far or how close we are from that bullseye, we're all missing it without God. And I think that's a much healthier way to look at it, whereas all of human existence is based upon pride, really, undergirding this idea that we're better than somebody. Somebody's worse. Which I kind of think while we're all obsessed with these like murder podcasts and things, it's like it's a helpful reminder that, well, at least I didn't murder 10 people, you know. So I'm like, not that bad. <laughs> so, um, well, let's jump into this. Let's jump into, this is my discussion crew right here. You guys are great. You get, you both get gold stars. <laughs> your, your, uh, your card just got raised to the highest level. Thank you. Um, all right, so this question, where does sin come from? I'll be honest, as teaching this class, I bothered David and Eric with some texts about some really esoteric theological concerns that I had about whether we're actually separated from God, you know, via sin and things. I won't get into a lot of that. David sent an article um, just to confuse me more about do we sin in heaven or not. So that was cool. Thanks, David. Um, I think the answer is no, but the, the question is why. You know, we'll get into that some other time. But I think this is a good question is where does sin come from? I think it's important to, to know this one. This is one, yeah, we can have disagreements on some like odd theological things, but I think we should at least know some things about this question uh, completely. And so, just to repeat, sin is in direct contradiction to God and His nature. In His nature, God is perfect, He's holy, He cannot sin. Um, and so we should never blame God for sin or think that He bears responsibility for our sin. So another thing is when we sin or we mess up or we get caught, what's the first thing we do? We look for someone to blame. We look for someone to put that responsibility on. It's like, well, yeah, I, I committed adultery, but, you know. So all these sort of things, and that's, it's not fair. We can't put that on God. So Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, God's work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, which we'll talk about iniquity later. Just and upright is he. James 1, 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is not responsible for our sin. Um, however, it seems that sin is something that God ordained or allowed. Certainly it was something that didn't surprise him when it happened and when it came into the world. And along those lines, Ephesians 1, uh, 11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is sovereign. God is in control. It's not like sin surprised God. 
And why it didn't surprise God is because God chose, and I don't exactly know why he chose this. You can have this conversation. But he chose to allow us, moral creatures, to willfully and voluntarily choose to sin. Okay? And thus begins a really long 2,000 years of talking about why that was the way that God chose and why didn't he make us as creatures that had the option to choose sin but just didn't want to? Or why did he not choose us to be creatures that just couldn't sin, had no capacity to sin? Well, I don't know. God chose to make creatures that could sin and would sin based on who we are. Okay? And I think the reason for that, not to go too deep into this, is, is that God wanted to create a world whereby people, the greatest number of people would possibly come to him through free will. Um, and in that sense, it glorifies him most. But I don't have all the answers on that, but that's kind of what I think. But in terms of where does sin come from, it does not come from God, although God allows it. And that is a little bit of a theological issue, that question. And I think we can have some disagreements on some of that, but I think one thing we can't disagree on is God did not create sin. I think we have to be very clear about that. It's not in his nature to create sin. So sin existed in Satan and his demons before Adam and Eve disobeyed, and that's a whole other difficult thing. Um, uh, and then it entered the world uh, of humans through their decisions. And so we talked about this already. In the garden, God told Adam not to eat from what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam and Eve both ate from it. They directly contradicted God's command. Um, but neither God nor Satan forced them to do that, right? So Satan tempted. God allowed for this to be a possibility. But man did this willingly, and woman did this willingly, and they willingly sinned against God. And I think that's important to accept. So when you ask the question is, well, where did sin come from? The answer is, it came from us. It came from our decisions. Okay? And so as a result of this sin, this decision to take this apple and to eat it, or as the video said, to redefine good and evil for themselves, thinking that they were wiser than God, right? Um, Adam's nature became sinful. The earth became sinful. He had to work against it. And there was pain in childbirth, and so on and so forth. We know all these things. And so then, depending on your theology, either we inherited sin as original sin, or we inherited a sinful nature which leads to sin. Either way, however you unpack that in your mind, we all sin. Okay? And in that sense, we all deserve the penalty for sin. Okay? And we, in Romans 3, it says, We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned which is what uh, Eric talked about, where the real thing about sin is it brings death, it brings darkness, okay? And it's only in Christ that we have light and we have life, okay? All right, so moving on to question three. How does sin affect us? I think this is an important question. I think probably we know this, but let's talk about it anyway. All right, so in Genesis 2, um, the penalty for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do you know what that penalty is? It's not a stomachache. It's death, okay? Paul tells us in Romans 6, the penalty of, of sin, the wages of sin, is death. Now, the interesting thing is this penalty is not immediate. It's not like as soon as you sin, you die. So Adam and Eve, they weren't killed on the spot, right? When we sin, we're not killed on the spot. Um, and I think the reason for that is, is that God offers us the ability to not be condemned by the sin that does leave us deserving of death. It's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we get freedom from this condemnation. So 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay? 
Um, in Romans 8, it says that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that would be us, there's therefore now no condemnation. So when we sin as forgiven Christians, this is important, it doesn't change our legal standing with God. So once we are in Christ, we are in Christ, okay? Hidden in Christ. Um, and when we sin, that doesn't change that. So the analogy that I use is like marriage. You can be in a marriage, it's legally binding, okay? You are married, and you could be the worst husband or the worst wife on earth. You could still exhibit, you know, live in the same home. You could still sleep in the same bed. And in that sense, you're close. But man, there's a huge wall between you because you're terrible. <laughs> you know, your relationship is totally broken. And yet you're still legally, you're still married. Okay, on a document, it would say that you're married. You know, it's Mr. and Mrs. Fagala. Yes, we're married. Um, but our relationship with God is kind of like that. And I think that's how sin affects it. So once you're in Christ... It does not mean that when you sin, you're no longer in Christ. And it's this constant game of jumping in and out of the circle. Okay, you're in the circle, but what does sin do to that relationship? What well, hurts it? It obscures it. It clouds it. It makes it more distant. Okay, so this question of separation from God, well, we're never completely separated from God when we're in Christ because Christ lives in us through his spirit. Okay, and God surrounds us in whatever way you want to say that. Okay. Um, sort of like the water analogy. I'm just going to refer to Eric a million times. It's sort of like we are in water, okay, and that God is that water. Like, we're not getting out of God and his presence, and God runs to us when we sin. He doesn't run away from us, okay? We're the ones running away. Um, but the truth is it hurts that relationship. I think in marriage, again, is a good analogy for that. And so uh, this is how I see sin and the way it affects uh, our relationship with God. We are still in him, but we aren't living for him like we could be. Okay, and I think like with marriage, if you're in the relationship and you're married and you decide you want to do that and you made this, this oath and you took these vows, why not make it the best relationship that it can be? It really makes no sense to make it the worst that it can be, right? And so I think our relationship with God should be the same. And we should seek to make it as good as it can be. Um, so obviously other ways that sin can affect us, well, it affects the people around us, does it not? Um, it can hurt relationships. It can destroy relationships. Um, I've had a friend this past year that was, was caught up in, in a particular sin of, of alcoholism, and it destroyed the life around him. It destroyed his, his work. It destroyed his family life. And it really it destroyed him. And uh, it wasn't until he decided to, to really run from that sin that his life got significantly better and almost overnight. And so in a situation like that, you can really see the effect of sin. And it's almost like a like a physical thing that you can just, you can almost like see it, like it's like a cloud hanging over someone. Um, certainly for some of us, we have those clouds hanging over us that are really just wrecking our lives and wrecking the lives of the people around us. Um, I'd say this further is that even though all Christians sin, we're not going to stop sinning completely, right? Uh, we should not participate in a long-term pattern of greater and greater disobedience to God's moral law. 1 John 3.9 says, For no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So if you see a pattern of someone that is committed to a life of sin, who's living in a life of sin and doubles down on that and doubles down on it again, well, for one thing, that starts a conversation of what the church and elders should do, and that's complicated and that's difficult. I'm glad I don't have that job. Um, Dave does, and Eric does, but no one else in this room. You don't have to worry about it. You're good. No, I'm just kidding. I actually, think we do have that job, but anyway. Um, it's difficult, okay? Um, it's not a good thing. That's not a thing a Christian should be doing. It's not someone in a relationship with God who wants a good relationship would do. If in a marriage, I, I cheat on my wife, and she finds out, I say, well, sorry about that. I do it again. She says, hey, I need you to stop doing that. 
I do it again, I do it again. What good is that going to do? That's, that's, that's no good. Um, and so if a person makes a practice of sinning without repentance, there's two things. Either he or she never actually was saved. This is another theological conundrum, right? Or they've fallen away. Okay, it depends on your concept of the perseverance of saints. Okay, um, but either way, we should reflect the image of Christ increasingly in our lives. Okay, do you agree with that? That's what we call sanctification. We've talked about that some. All right, so let's get to a conclusion. I know this is deep, deep stuff. Got a couple more Keller tweets. This is a Keller tweet day. Um, this guy actually lives in Memphis, and I have, I, you know this guy? Rondell, I don't, I found, like I've sort of followed him. I agree with him like almost exactly politically. So if you want to disagree with me politically, go read his tweets and then you'll probably say, oh, Kyle's crazy. Um, but I, I kind of stumbled upon this guy and he retweets Tim Keller, so I, I like that. Maybe I don't agree with him completely, but anyway. So I want to conclude with two thoughts as we're talking about sin and we're going to be done on time, I promise. Two kind of challenges for the church and challenges for, for you, or for us, I should say. Um, and it's the idea that we both uh, that we need to be both uncomfortable. Ooh. Man, my writing gets worse and worse every day. Great at typing. Uh, we need to get uncomfortable and comfortable when it comes to sin. And here's what I mean. So uncomfortable, right? Um, if you're caught in sin, uh, it needs to make you uncomfortable. Okay, whether it's public or it's private. Um, it needs to be something that doesn't feel right and that you're aware of the fact that it doesn't feel right. And I think the way that you get to a point where it doesn't feel right and you're convicted that it's wrong is through sound preaching, it's through reading your Bible, it's through prayer, it's through worship, it's through spending time surrounded by truth, okay? It's not by watching, I was going to say soap operas, <laughs> like anyone watches soap operas, but it's not just by living in the world and letting that seep in and shape our worldview, Okay? It's, it's by good and sound theology, okay? Um, and it's by living in community with people who share those same things and who will call you out when you do wrong things. Um, you must confess and repent and run away from uh, this pattern or action or attitude. All right, so 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then Keller's tweet goes right in that. that the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe Yet at the very same time, we were more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I love that. All right, the second thing we need to do is we need to be comfortable with sin. And what I mean by that is, is that as a church, we must be comfortable using the word sin and calling out sin as sin. We cannot ignore sin, and it is more comfortable to use the word grace and to think about grace and love and acceptance, and God is those things. But God also hates sin, and we have to be comfortable with that. So we cannot ignore sin or redefine sin or allow, I think, our cultural desire for tolerance and comfort to outweigh the truth of God's word and his plan for humanity. God did not have a plan for humanity for several thousand years only to change it in the last ten because the culture changed their mind. Okay? God did not view the, the culture developing over the last ten or fifteen years and say, you know what, they've got some good points. I, I think, I th yeah, I think they're right. So I will reveal this to these seven people on Twitter, and I will let them spread my new gospel. Okay? This is not the way that life works. And if anyone got that tip, it was Oprah. You know, she was going to, you know. Um, so I, I think also just we have to accept, and I think the video has gotten at this, hopefully some of what I've said has gotten at this, is that if we become more and more consumed with sin, or really maybe just more consumed 
um, and undergirded or filled, I guess you could say, with the ways of the world or the ways of our culture, the ways that our, our world thinks, uh, things that aren't in line with the will of God will begin to look in line to us, okay? And I think that's a pattern of sin, is that crooked lines look straight. And I really think we see that from a human sexuality standpoint. That's what we see, is crooked lines begin to look straight and vice versa. And it's like, this makes no sense. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to be jerks, but it does mean that we have to be comfortable with calling that sin and being committed to what we, what we believe is true, which God has revealed to us as truth. If we can't do that, the, the church loses all its power. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. This doesn't mean anything. And if we can't hold to the truths that God has revealed to us, then this isn't really worth the time of coming here, okay? Because what we do as a church, if we redefine sin, we're allowing someone to say that in their sin, that there's no power of that sin over them. And that's a huge problem. So I, 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 I'm not trying to get at anything in particular, but just in general. Um, so as the video said, and we'll, we'll wrap up uh, two minutes. Um, when we're caught up in sin, I love this point. This is what David pointed out, is that we actually think we're doing the right thing. I think that's a fascinating idea and a very profound idea. And the idea that Saul chased David and thought he was doing the right thing. And if you've read those books, I don't know how Saul thought he was doing the right thing. Okay, he was awful. Um, the amazing thing is that David never uh, returned those actions to Saul. And the reason why David didn't do that is because he, he felt like it would dishonor God. It's a whole other amazing lesson that we'll maybe do sometime. As Pharaoh was enslaving people, making them work for him, okay, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He thought he was doing the right thing. That's crazy. And again, everyone thinks they're their, their own hero in their story. Um, but if we're trapped in a pattern of sin, we are not the hero. We are the villain. Maybe we're so brainwashed that we can't tell the difference. And so as a church, we can't allow ourselves to get brainwashed. We have to stay committed to what sin is, and we have to be comfortable in that. As uncomfortable as that may make us feel, we have to be comfortable in that. So we have to be uncomfortable with sin in our lives and the lives of the people around us. We have to be comfortable with what sin is and the effect that that has on people's lives. We shouldn't feel bad to tell someone they're in sin. It's going to wreck lives and it could send them to hell. Okay, so it's very important that we're both comfortable and uncomfortable. Okay, here's another Keller tweet. If we can't love the sin or hate the sin, then how can we relate to ourselves? Love who we are in Christ, but still hate the sin remaining. Acknowledging this doesn't make you a self-hater. It makes you immensely realistic. You can hold on to the good while admitting the bad. It's kind of what, it's kind of what I'm trying to get, get to. Okay, so coming back to this original point that I made is, is that uh, as we're talking about this first bad word of the Bible, uh, sin, the main point I want to get across is, is that understanding the gospel requires that we accept that we're not right, okay? That we're not good. We don't deserve the good things in our life because of the things that we do. We're sinful. We have a disease that needs to be cured. We have a diagnosis that we are wrecked in many ways and that the gospel is, is that there's a cure. Okay, Colossians 2.13 says, When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And I'll end with this thought. I love this idea is that when Jesus healed people, and specifically um, talking about the adulterous woman in, I guess, John 8, um, uh, he healed them because they believed that they were sick or that there was something wrong with them. Okay? Who did he not heal? He didn't heal the Pharisees. He didn't heal the teachers of law. Why did he not heal them? They didn't think they were sick. They didn't think there was anything wrong with them, right? They actually thought the opposite. They thought they were right, okay? Now, what did he tell people when he healed them, specifically in this case? He told them uh, to go and sin no more, okay? Did Jesus think they would sin no more? Of course not. He knew they were going to keep sinning, okay? 
Um, he probably knew exactly what they were going to do. But he still said it. But what he wanted was that the direction of their lives, the new nature of their way, should be to sin less. Okay? And so for us as forgiven sinners, let us too go and sin no more. Okay? All right. Oh, and there's my little picture. That's what we got for today. Um, I'll do some prayer requests, and we'll wrap up.